This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politcoast. Today is January 12th, 2023. I'm Scott Delunderboom. And I am not Ian Bushfield. I am Stuart Prest. Stuart, thanks for uh, joining us today and uh, filling in for Ian on a, a little short notice. He's a little under the weather tonight. Yeah, sorry to hear that. I hope uh, Ian is uh, on the mend soon and I'm happy to step in uh, in the meantime. So for today's show, we got a bit of a roundup on the little bit of news that has come out of uh, BC politics in the uh, early days of the year. Plus, uh, apparently it's been as big wheat for uh, defense spending in Canada, and we'll round out the uh, show with a couple of takes on that. Uh, but first, got to thank our patrons who make the show possible and who are big reason why the patron slack is such a lively and fun place to discuss uh, politics and everything, and uh, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash bloodcoast. I can endorse the the, uh, the Patreon, the, the Slack channel. It is, if you want to stay on top of BC News, there isn't a better place to find out uh, what's going on and to, to find out what different people are thinking about it. It's a lively place. And with that, let's jump into the BC News in the Week. So earlier today, uh, Premier David Eby and Housing Minister Ravi Colon uh, announced a new $500 million rental protection fund. This will allow nonprofits to buy older rental buildings and keep them affordable, basically, and uh, try to move some of the current rental buildings that may be coming up for sale into the uh, non-market sector. So follow on to a campaign pledge that uh, David Eby had made, one of the few pledges from his leadership race. That's right. I think this is a, an indication of, uh, of what we can expect uh, to, to continue to trickle out of the uh, uh, of this government over the, the succeeding months on housing, which is just a, a continual set of announcements, of uh, programs, and really throwing different things at the wall to see where there is additional value to be fun. This isn't going to be transformative. It's not the, the money just isn't significant enough to to make this uh uh, this this change to have any tremendous effect on say the price of of housing but this may be a a way to to uh build a new program that that can support additional affordable housing over over the medium term term if it turns out to be successful but i think we're we are in something of a throw stuff at the walls phase and, and to see is this is this another kind of partner that the government can provide additional funding to 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 provide uh stable rental housing yeah, five hundred million doesn't buy all that many apartment buildings, particularly in a place like Vancouver. But uh, it's a start. It's gonna have a marginal effect, and that effect's probably going to be positive. But doesn't really shift the needle all that much. And for that, it's uh, going to be on the other policies that uh, they'll hopefully be unveiling or following up on the legislation that has passed. 
Yeah, and so again, I think we we'll, we we have seen uh, other announcements where there there is the potential to do more work, and then we have to wait and see the details. So this idea of a, a BC builds program where they work with different agencies around the province to to build new housing. This seems to be of something of a piece with that, where the government is saying we can't do everything on our own, but perhaps we can we can incentivize other actors to to fill in some of the gaps that that we are are seeing. And so I think uh, we we are just going to to have to to wait and see where other other funding is announced and and if there are some really large dollar figures coming out to uh, to support building new housing as well there's probably some uh, need here to try to to show that the the, the government is is listening to renters uh, as a as a group and to show that they're they're being heard this concern of of uh, 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 purpose-built rentals or i guess purpose-maintained rentals in this case uh, being uh, preserved in some being treasured in some form on on the market this is uh, something that has been a long-standing complaint and so at least the government can say they are doing something now and perhaps this can be the the seed for, for additional programs and additional uh, funding in, in the future. One other thing worth noting here uh, is uh, that this is a, a the face of government as we are going to know it on, on housing, and housing is the big issue where we see uh, David Eby and, and Ravi Callan working together, announcing together something. And so it's, it's an interesting uh, version of this one-two punch I think we're going to get quite used to over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, David Eby uh, certainly likes to be at all the press conferences, it seems like. i actually having trouble thinking of a big announcement from the government that he wasn't the one printing out. Like this this seems to be like a little more of a center office focused uh, ministry than perhaps the one he just uh, replaced. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly something to that. We know that there's a, a been a staffing up of the premier's office, and we we know that Mr. Eby has found a set of issues that he sees as his priorities. So I guess you could say to uh, to his credit, to the credit of the government at the moment, we know what they want to focus on. They want to focus on housing, trying to make housing more affordable. They want to focus on public safety. They want to focus on on trying to address healthcare. Uh, shortfalls. And, and so whenever those issues come up, I, we would expect, uh, I guess, Mr. Eby to be there to really be putting his stamp on on uh, government as the new premier. But but if he's there for everything all the time, uh, that that could become uh, a little uh, a little crowded for, for other ministers. It could uh, also become a, a one person show and, and lead to a, a dwindling of the kind of enthusiasm or or, or diverse energy that you can get from a, a more team based approach to to cabinetry indeed uh and the only other thing i'll mention on this is uh yeah this is a case where they're trying to balance out the uh renters versus building out uh existing renters versus building out new housing uh curiously that uh long promised uh renters rebate still seems to be uh stuck in limbo and uh it's no closer to coming through even as the uh government uh seems to have no problem raising the homeowner's grant year after year oh but maybe this is the year maybe this is the one-time home renters uh renters uh grant maybe this 2023 is is the year of the renter we can wait and see I i'm not holding my breath on that one nor i not in the lower mainland well as you mentioned one of the other priorities of david eby is uh public safety and 
The BC Prosecution Service has announced that they are going to be staffing up quite a bit uh, as part of the government's uh, drive and safer communities action plan. Uh, so they announced they're going to be hiring up to 40 Crown Councils this year. Uh, some of this is just filling existing turnover, and a bunch of it is to fill vacancies created by the uh, dedication of prosecutors to the repeat offender response teams. This is another area where uh, I, I guess we could talk about that for, for housing, uh, uh, but this is an area where government is responsible and yet limited in the way in it can respond at, at the provincial level, trying to to address the way in which the court approaches uh, criminal uh, criminal uh, prosecutions. Uh, that's a federal jurisdiction. And uh, so the law is set by uh, the federal government and, and the overarching structure of, uh, of courts is, is responsive to to uh, the federal government, but but provinces create the surrounding uh, the structures of, of the courts themselves. The, uh, they also are responsible for managing the prosecutorial service of uh, of the province, and and so here we see this is an area where the, the provincial government can have an influence on the the conduct of uh, of criminal law in, in in BC, and so by trying to staff up the the prosecution service, trying to ensure that there is a, a dedicated um, a set of prosecutors, both to respond to repeat violent offenders, but also to pick up that that shortfall, they can at least say, we are not the ones responsible for any kind of delays in the system. We are providing the resources necessary to to make these courts work as efficiently as as we can for our part. Yeah, and the the court system has been rather famously backlogged for quite a while, and uh, even if there wasn't a repeat offender problem, staffing that up is probably a good thing by itself. Although, with the uh, the ongoing concerns, it uh, it provides some extra reason to do it. Uh, <clears throat> it it is somewhat notable that uh, this is kind of a change in direction from where the NDP was up until a couple months ago on this, and I don't know. I, I think it's a sign that. Uh, they're still doing a fairly good job of trying to hew to the center and course correct when they need to, uh, which looked like they may know that they were in danger of losing. But uh, with some of this, the recent moves here does indicate some of the, uh, the political savvy hasn't entirely left uh, the NDP in Victoria, even though no, they are seems starting to get a bit of government-itis in some other areas. But but I think you're right. I think there was a, a, a real concern uh, in the wake of, uh, if you want to date it from the municipal elections and looking at Ken Sim winning in, in Vancouver. And the, the thing people remember about him was the commitment to, to hire a bunch of police officers. And and so that uh, that seems like it might be a message that can resonate with, with British Columbians. And if that, that proved to be so, that can spell a real problem for the NDP. They're not associated with, with law and order, with, with enforcement uh, uh, in the, uh, as their, their strength in, in public safety. Their, their strength lies with dealing with other aspects of, uh, of issues in, in uh, Vancouver cities and, and rural areas to, to do with uh, the, sort of the healthcare uh, connected issues that, that we see in areas of the downtown east side and, and so on. And so I think 
they are really keen not to be outflanked as the, the party of law and order. And they're never going to win that debate, I don't think. I don't think the the British Columbians, if they're really keen to vote for the law and order party, are going to vote for for the NDP, but they can at least neutralize that that advantage a little bit and, and, and prevent uh, Mr. Falcon from, from hammering on uh, the government for being asleep at the switch when we have these these uh, sporadic but but high profile uh, acts of violence that we see in places like Vancouver and Victoria over the summer. Yeah, it's a shield issue for them. If, if in the next election the debate is about public safety, they will probably lose. the The benefit of doing stuff like this is it means the next election is much less likely to have that be the ballot box question and be the the ongoing debate. Uh, so good move on their part. The the system has been underfunded on some of this stuff for a while and uh it's good they're not letting ideology uh get in the way of doing some pragmatic stuff on this yeah i mean when people start to feel unsafe in their homes and at a certain point that 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 feeling is not connected simply with the actual overall absolute rate of of uh in, uh, violent incidents or criminal incidents in in the province. If people stop feeling safe in their their homes, that that they're in their neighborhoods and so on, that that is going to take precedence over other concerns. It it, it rises to the forefront, and so trying to do to be clear that they are uh, uh, attentive to those concerns is an important part of showing that you are a government that listens to the people, that responds to the people, even if enforcement is not going to be the, the solution to a lot of the problems that we see uh, plaguing the, the province's uh, cities when we're talking about issues that are often related to to, to poverty, lack of access to, to healthcare, and lack of access to housing. These are, these are all interconnected issues. And and so to, to provide a long-term solution, it's going to require a broad-based set of, of, of policies. But but this uh, prevents it from becoming a, a political issue on that, that the, the, the enforcement side. Well, speaking of uh, listening to what uh, British Columbians think, Kevin Falcon apparently uh, has been doing that when it comes to traffic on the north shore or at least uh that's what he'd uh try to give the impression of uh earlier this week he did a, a round table with a bunch of reporters uh i believe it was moderated by Kirk Point uh from glacier uh and took questions on adding a new crossing uh across the vancouver harbor to the north shore i mean the third crossing thing has been a an ongoing debate since what like the 60s uh, and this is the latest round of that. Uh, he said that crossing, referring to Second Narrows, is 60 years old, literally starting to fall apart. Uh, just going over it a week ago when a chunk of the bridge fell through and created a hole, which, taken out of context, kind of sounds like he punched a hole in it, but probably not what uh, he was going for there, and, and not the case. Um, but yeah, like I, I think a sign that they're fairly interested in winning back a couple of the North Shore ridings they've uh, lost over the last two elections. Yeah, and here we get into the the, the debate: is 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 a bridge going to solve uh, traffic issues on on the North Shore? I I have to confess, I I. <laughs> 
have to drive that route quite often to get up to Squamish teaching at Quest University. And and I am well aware of how bad that traffic is. I am also skeptical that a bridge is going to fix uh, everything. The, the, the problem is that there are too many people trying to move around a, a single roadway. And the, 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 as the population continues to, to grow, that is going to only continue. And uh, I I understand the need to want to try to promise something big and bold to 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 fix it, but I um, I'm curious. I'm genuinely curious. Is this the sort of thing that is actually going to sway a lot of voters? Um, I think there's a decent chance of it. So, um, I remember back in the 2018 municipal elections when there was polling going around, and I honestly just not sure what the more recent polling from the last round is outside of Vancouver, but uh city of Vancouver proper but like I remember it was notable back then that those were basically the only areas in the entire metro region the the three north shore municipalities where transportation and gridlock beat housing as the top priority uh for voters and the traffic doesn't seem to have gotten better in the the four years since then so I could see a pretty solid case why that would be still top of mind for the north shore so that's the thing is like i i i'm willing to grant i i i'm quite uh sympathetic to the idea that people living in the north shore think about traffic more than anyone else because the traffic is bad it is not good on the north shore and it is never good it is always bad unless you are commuting at say 5 a.m or or 10 p.m or something like that outside those hours you're going to be uh, at a at a risk of a traffic jam at, at any moment but i'm more uh, interested whether the idea of like here's a here's a big bold project we're going to build you a new bridge is that actually going to convince people that they're the right party to, to deal with traffic issues do is that all that people is that going to solve the issue is a question and do people actually think it's going to solve the issue is, is, is another question uh i think people are probably going to be more convinced than not it's going to solve the issue whether or not it actually will is the bigger question because a pretty robust finding is that uh when you add highway lanes you don't actually uh decreased congestion uh because induced demand basically means that people will drive more because there's now easier ways to get it's now easier to drive and like it basically zeroes out on that now some of like the actual like bottleneck stuff like on believing some specific bottlenecks you may be able to get more gains than a typical just expand the highway would you can uh, but i can from personal experience confirm that there are many bottlenecks in the north shore it is not just the one bridge and so quite often what you can find is that you will end up exposing another bottleneck uh, along the way if you expand traffic at one bottleneck and so i i suspect there may be something of that effect and having having a bigger bridge would probably uh, help to some extent so you have this that, that merge and main street coming off onto the the, the bridge deck and you have uh, the um uh, the, the people coming down the cut and so perhaps you can move people a little faster through that but but that's only going to address so many of the problems there are other traffic jams that occur in in the north shore and and just as you say you may just uh, end up inducing more traffic as well yeah it's also interesting that uh that this contrast was what the municipalities have been really pushing for which is a crossing for a sky train to the north shore uh, that would require a new bridge. The uh, the studies on adding a couple rail 
tracks to the uh, second narrows or is pretty conclusive that you really just would have to do so much upgrades to the bridge itself that it's not worth it. So they'll probably be getting a third uh, bridge one way or the other, whether it's going to be uh, one for cars, one for rail, or maybe even a combination of both. Uh, going to be kind of up in the air, but that that is kind of the other big way to address it. And the North Shore being more suburban is a little tougher to to work around with a, a dedicated rail line, uh, particularly for people coming in from Burnaby, Surrey, those parts of the region where it, they're just, it's too spread out to really funnel very effectively on into a single line. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. There's definitely some technical and planning challenges around that, but uh, it's an interesting look at where they are. And I think if they were to, the Liberals or BC United or whatever they'll be calling themselves uh, when the election actually comes around uh, want to really kind of try and lock that in. They they may be better off committing to doing both since they're already going to have to build a bridge uh, for one of them. Yeah. Uh, and that may be the savvier political way to go about it. Yeah. And I don't know we're in a point where uh, being the party of cars is going to win you a lot of seats in the in the urban areas of uh of the province and so being party of of a billion new bridge for cars will please some but it it is not the the slam dunk it once was i don't think in in the the urban areas of of the, the province where the the liberals or bc united need to 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 make their gains they need to be a party that really speaks to to urban issues that and the way in which urban uh, british columbians themselves understand them and so uh i'm not sure that uh i, I i'm not sure that just becoming the party of uh, of a, a big bold project is going to win them the votes that they think there is also this i guess more general political question might be worth talking about for a second which is is it a good idea to become uh, an opposition party known for some big promise like if you elect us we're going to do this big thing this big easy to to remember thing we're going to build a brand new bridge in the, in the north shore and just promising a big new spending a big shiny easy thing to remember does that speak to responding to unmet need and does that help people remember the party remember the promise or does it come across as being a little bit um um uh, amateur amateur is a strong word, but that idea of of, of unseriousness of saying we're just going to do the big things we're not really going to be able to zero in on the, the the hard work of government and and talking about how are we going to to do some of the more uh, nuts and bolts issues we're all about uh, just the, the flash in the bang well there's a couple of schools of thought when it comes to opposition of uh whether they should just basically try and keep their options open and basically be there so they can just respond to things during the election period uh, if the governments are in the position to defeat themselves. And then there's the, we're going to try and make the proactive case for us. Uh, this would be a little more of the latter. But like, I really don't think voters are going to dive into the policy specifics and I'm going to incrementally move along this very complicated uh, socioeconomic problem that nobody has ever like figured out the the true solution to yet is probably something that doesn't actually resonate with voters and like 
doesn't stick in their mind. Whereas, hey, I'm going to hire a hundred cops or I'm going to build a bridge is something that is tangible, easy to wrap your head around. You know what the the outcome is. You know what the action items are going to be uh, to get from uh, here to there. And it's the sort of tangible promise that can work fairly well. Uh, I would point to the NDPs. Hey, we're going to eliminate bridge tolls as another example of a simple, easy to understand promise that worked way better than a complicated, well, actually you have to understand that road pricing has effects on how road demand works. And that's going to kind of keep traffic volumes to a manageable level on key bridge. Like he, one of those is good political communication and one of them is something us nerds like to talk about. And if they're trying to win, they should, they should probably focus on the easy to remember, easy to grasp policy ideas, even if the nerds don't find it all that satisfying. I think there's there can be something to this, but I think we tend to remember when it is successful. So if we go back to, to say, uh, uh, Andrew Wilkinson's campaign, he promised to, to pause the, the PST. He promised to to build the the um, uh, Massey Tunnel Bridge replacement, and and so he made he made these big bold promises as well, and and it, it didn't work as well at all. And so I think it is a there, there's a there is something of alchemy there where it, it works when it works, and it doesn't when it doesn't. So it has to be put together as part of a a broader narrative. And if that narrative makes sense, I think the the key here for Vulcan is that he's talking about we're going to be the party of doing things, and he's trying to make the case that the the NDP isn't doing things, uh, and so he's 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 trying to to uh, uh, essentially to capture that kind of business that business get stuff done kind of vibe as as the, the spirit of, of of his party if if this becomes a part of that then it becomes part of a, a successful strategy if it becomes more of a i'm just going to promise the, the big shiny thing without any kind of larger vision attached to it or it doesn't really necessarily make sense as part of a, a larger plan for the province then i don't think it, it it'll work out so so it, it it could be a building block and it could be um it could just be a flash in the pan. So I, I think it can go either way. Yeah, it needs to tap into something that voters are already feeling to, to be successful. The uh, Andrew Wilkinson GST example, that was a case where, sure, I would like to save a couple percent when I buy stuff because I'm not paying BST, but... Uh, it it doesn't it was not what anyone was really thinking about in the fall of 2020 was our sales taxes impacting my budget too much and it just like missed the moment whereas uh bridge tolls or the 100 police officers tapped into a moment and i don't know it, it's hard to say exactly on this one but uh I think there's a stronger case that this is going to tap into something at least locally on the North Shore than it uh, than the other than some of the other examples uh, that the Liberals have tried over the past while. But uh, who knows? Maybe housing is going to once again dominate things, which was the other big thing he brought up. And in this case, it was uh, honestly not all that different than. what the government of the day is saying beyond 
uh, being a lot more critical of the government of the day. Uh, so uh, Kevin Falcon's uh, of the position that the uh, lack of supply, the need for ha- more housing to be built is like a key part of getting a handle on the housing crisis and that uh, municipalities are a big part of the problem and that a government under him would also establish targets for new housing and hold local governments accountable, which is not all that dissimilar from what the NDP is doing. So it's a sign of kind of an emerging housing consensus in BC. There's, I mean, potential I mean, consensus that there's, there's an issue. There's, it is interesting to, that there's this endorsement of, of making local governments uh, somehow uh, pay up if they, they are not able to, to uh, meet uh uh, targets for housing. I, like you say, that's basically endorsing the, the current government government's approach, saying, "Well, but we were going to do what they're doing, only better," um, which is is less effective as a as a, as a critique, even if it is uh, um, even if it is is a correct one. I think it is fascinating that everyone is is agreeing that this is now the, the fault of local governments uh that is a, a real change and uh, it is a little surprising too that uh, uh kevin falcon didn't use the opportunity to to sort of wrap himself up in in the local government flag the idea of uh, of accountability to to the, the 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 person on the street and the the, the government that is closest to the people and saying that uh, he could have done that. He could have said that uh, this this approach by the the NDP is uh, um, eroding principles of local democracy, and instead saying no, these these local governments are absolutely dragging their heels, and something's got to change. Uh, so um, that 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 is interesting to, to see. I'm sure there was a discussion about which way to, to go on that, and and it, maybe local governments are just not that popular these days, and that's a possibility as well. Yeah, so like there, there's definitely an option for him to do that, and that's like the very easy political thing to do is take the opposite position of whatever the government is doing i i do wonder how much of this is influenced by the by his pub uh, by his private sector experience he he was working for i believe it was anthem properties uh before he returned to politics and uh maybe actually having to deal with local governments uh was part of what pushed him towards seeing how uh they can be impediments to building housing so that this could be a case where uh life experience has uh informed him in a way that uh maybe made it so he doesn't want to take the easy route on That's it right. quietly saying this david you are right the municipal governments are absolutely terrible on this and something's got to change one of those those uh, memes online on Twitter back in the days when we went on Twitter. I don't go on Twitter anymore. Very, not very much anyways. But, you know, people at the Oscars clapping and pointing and all that. And so and just an agreement that uh, the excess uh, regulation at the local level is is a real impediment to to uh, maximizing and, and, and really meeting the market demand for housing in this province. Yeah. I'll also point out, like, there's internally within the, the VC Liberals, there's being efforts by i think particularly the uh the younger generation that maybe isn't necessarily reflected in the mlas at this moment but kind of the people who will be coming up after the current batch uh to kind of make this more of an issue and and also kind of settle on the yeah we really actually do need to get the uh nimbyism of local governments dealt with and 
like those internal workings may be uh, also making their way into what the leaders are the leader is saying so it, it's uh anyone talking anyone talking to anyone under the age of 30 or under the age of 40 or really any age trying to rent anywhere uh, is going to know that things are not good things are in fact quite bad yeah so like there, there's I know there's been like some active work by kind of younger members of the party on this, uh, which may be bearing fruit here as well. But uh, yeah, it's I, I mostly just find this interesting in that like we're very clearly settling on a single view within the the province here, and you know that isn't necessarily the case everywhere. And you know maybe Ontario's going to get there in a little bit, but they're not quite there yet with their politics and. I mean, part of that may just be how uh, ham-fisted Ford is with everything. But, uh, yeah, it's... I think we're trying to lead on the pack, at least in Canada, on this one. It is noteworthy. This this is a significant development as well in the particular sense that municipalities themselves, if they are, are displeased with the EB's, uh, the EB government's uh, approach of, of putting in place some kind of uh, a quota or expectation for for development on municipalities and and uh, communicating a willingness to step in if cities don't do it themselves there might have been an instinct to try to to push back against the NDP to to try to play out the clock to to play for time in the hopes that a, a future liberal government would come to their aid and say actually you don't have to do that things are fine the way they are but the liberal government is saying or the sorry the liberal liberal party is saying no actually we we agree that the <laughs> this is this is on you there, there's no incentive to to play out the clock or to to really to push against it they the municipalities really do have to respond to to this increased expectation and, and so that, that that is uh, quietly a notable thing. Yeah, and it's also good because, like, one of my big concerns with the Housing Supply Act is it's very much dependent on the Minister for Housing and what they do and how active they are in really holding local government's feet to the fire on this. And uh, it, it remains to be seen how the current one's going to handle that and how tough uh, he's going to be. But it's a positive sign that a change in government isn't likely to ease up on that. But I'd still feel a little more comfortable if things were a little less dependent on the minister and a little more just kind of coded into the stretch of the Housing Supply Act. But it's a start. Yep. It is. And this is something we do know of um, of this government. It does have a tendency to to like to turn things over to, to the... Um, uh, to to the ministry, to to the relevant minister or cabinet as a whole, to make decisions and and so every, on a number of uh, of key issues, saying, well, we'll let them fill in the details and implement this as as they see fit, and and that can be quite good. It gives ministers a great deal of flexibility to respond to changing circumstances, but it it, it can at times be a recipe for. For not actually doing anything, so, such as with the uh, the, the debate regarding uh, uh, change to, to daylight savings time, if that's it's, well, a, it's up, to the, up to the that minister. That one's on Congress do. more than anything, right? Uh, but I mean, yeah, the, the, just the, the structure of the legislation is all I'm saying is that the, the the executive can change it when they when they want to change it, and they they're not going to change it until Congress does. And who knows when that's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of things that probably aren't actually going to happen, uh, David Eby is under recall threat. Uh, so a petition was filed with Elections BC this week to start the recall of David Eby in 
Vancouver Point Cray, his writing. Uh, this was initiated by uh, General Salvatore Vitro, who uh, I was unaware of, but uh, apparently was involved in the uh, 2010 anti-HST referendum, uh, as well as uh, founded a fringe political party called BC First, which I know basically nothing about. Um, but yeah, he started the process to get David Eby recalled uh, under the uh, rules. The recall canvassers now have to go out and collect signatures from 40% or more of eligible voters in the riding, which is 16,449 voters. They're going to have to get to agree to recall David Eby. On one hand, that is more than the 12,600 votes David Eby got last time, but also very far ahead of the uh, <clears throat> 7,700 that the Liberals got uh, in the 2020 election. And there's just like no way anyone is going to be able to uh, actually collect that many signatures against a reasonably popular politician like David Eby. Or pretty much any politician, for that matter, as these have uh, never really gone anywhere, uh, with one potential exception when, uh, in 1998, an MP an MLA resigned uh, after the signature threshold was met. Or, or it seemed to be on track to, to being met. And it was during the verification of signatures uh, that... Uh, I think Paul Reitzma uh, saw the writing on the wall and decided to uh, step out of the step out of uh, the, the role as MLA, and uh, I, I, I assume went on to do different things instead. In that case, uh, there was seemingly good evidence that Mr. Reitzma was uh, impersonating other people, writing to uh, local newspapers, uh, saying nice things about himself. Such a that's such a weird. Uh... Thing to go down over uh, <laughs> uh it is and yet it's the sort of thing that uh lives on with sock puppet accounts on uh, on places like twitter and so uh, the true yeah i mean i guess we did have uh was it pierre delecto uh yeah whose real identity got exposed yeah these uh these the, these things that was, never... uh, mitt romney's for anyone who uh, right. was not aware of that particular thing there's yeah, and there's nothing truly new in politics, but it, it is always changing the way it, it plays out, including sock puppet letters to newspapers. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this whole thing is apparently motivated by uh, like anti-vat sentiment and opposition to Bill 36, the Healthcare Professions and Occupations Act, and uh, the ability in there for. Uh, boards of the regulatory colleges to impose vaccine requirements on their members in the healthcare setting. It's a mess. It's, it's silly. It's not going to go anywhere, but uh, that seems to be the, the primary French of the recall legislation is to, to let cranks get a new story in every once in a while. Hmm. It does. And it is interesting. There are some, some through lines that we do see this this idea that government is not working that government is fundamentally corrupt and, and flawed i think um the uh, proponents of the uh, of the um, 
recall petition is, is arguing that uh, EV is a is a dictator. It's basically saying when when governments are acting using the powers that they have been uh, entrusted with, it is going too far, and that some concept of the real people need to rise up and stop it. Whether that takes the form of a a convoy to to Ottawa, or in this case, a perfectly legal but uh, certainly doomed to to not succeed uh, recall petition. Uh, we do see this this attempt this this linkage of of, of governments being not just wrong but but somehow requiring replace replacement being a, a through line in in this sort of uh populist moment in, in not just canadian politics but elsewhere but this is the canadian version of it well moving on to a uh, couple news stories from outside of the province it's been a big week for military spending in Canada, and that's uh, something that rarely ever happens. Uh, so, start of this week, the government announced that they finalized the F-35 purchase uh, for a $19 billion price tag. We'll be getting 85 F-35A jets that will start delivery in 2026. Uh, and the full complement will be delivered by 2032, replacing the CF-18s, because we've been part of the program since it started in the late 90s. uh, We get to pay the same cheaper cost that the U.S. does, Uh, so each Jetstream costs about 85 million U.S., which is a decent chunk of change, but also down quite a bit from what the unit costs were a few years ago and actually not all that much more expensive than what a like a four point a generation 4.5 fighter would cost uh so noteworthy on that respect uh a lot of the our um our more math inclined listeners might note that that doesn't uh multiplied out uh, by 88 doesn't uh equal 19 billion and the rest of that price tag is going to go for a lot of the other associated costs, uh, new equipment to service the jets, uh, new weapons to, to go with the jets, training. Uh, we have to build a new air, air fleet maintenance facility uh, to service them. Uh, so a lot of kind of additional costs that are going to be coming into it uh, over the next while. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the long, long-discussed uh, CF-18 replacement to, has crossed another milestone this week. It is an issue, truly decades in the making. We were talking about this under the the Harper government, and uh, the Trudeau government was elected in part on a promise not to to uh, uh, pay for the uh, the F thirty five fighter, and yet here we are getting CF thirty five fighters. It is uh, uh, <laughs> not just a defense story; it is a procurement defense story in Canada, and there is no more painful subject in. Uh, Canadian politics, I dare say. Uh, and so the fact that something definitive is happening is worth celebrating in its own way. Uh, the, the, every uh, state of uh, size uh, like Canada's is going to need some form of uh, military capacity in order to act on the global stage. And so having operable fighter jets is is, is a uh, something that the Canadian government had to take care of and it really took quite a while to to get there but 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 here we are now and uh, and uh, we can now turn our attention to to other uh, pressing procurement issues for the Canadian military 
Yeah, so th- this is important. I, I think people often underrate the importance of uh, defense spending in Canada and particularly timely replacement of equipment. Uh, currently, we're flying the CF-18 uh, jets. Those things are coming up on the end of their service life. You can only fly high-performance fighter aircrafts so many times uh, before the metal in the airframe starts to fatigue and crack and it becomes unsafe to fly them. Uh, we've had a couple stop gaps. Uh, we have life cycle extension programs going on. We bought some Australian fighters that they were getting rid of to to fill some gaps. But we're in a tough spot keeping our existing aircraft up in the air. It got announced earlier this year that we are going to be withdrawing the CF-18s we have in Romania uh, that are contributing to the defense of our allies in Eastern Europe. And that's unfortunate. And we were drawn then because we weren't able to maintain a presence to help bolster our allies while also undergoing the maintenance they need, keeping the training system going. And meeting our NORAD commitments here at home and having these replaced and actually having a complement of new working fighters would, uh, would do that well. And we use them like the, uh, every now and then Russia likes to probe our Northern airspace and we send out our jets to intercept them. And that's something that, uh, feels more important than it used to be. And, being able to do that routinely uh, without having to worry about the planes and the pilots who are setting up to do that uh, is going to be a good thing when they finally show up. One of the arguments for having a robust military capacity in Canada, it's interesting, it's not a new argument, it's been around for a while, is that Canada needs to be able to defend its own sovereign territory because that territory will be defended. The question is simply who is going to do the defending. And if Canada is not going to defend that airspace, then the United States will. (laughs) So uh, it is, in a sense, responding to... It is responding to uh, the the requirements of operating as a, a sovereign country in, uh, at its at its most basic uh, level and but beyond that as you were mentioning if we want canada to be active on the international stage to be a leader uh, it needs it that requires resources that requires resources for development assistance it requires resources for for diplomacy it requires resources for for uh, military procurement as well yeah and uh i think canada's feeling a little better about our relationship with the states but if we don't invest in these aircraft there's a decent chance that like a, a higher chance than i would like that uh trump could get reelected. and i don't know about you but like i certainly don't want donald trump deciding which aircraft can and can't fly over canada uh no that seems i certainly don't want putin deciding that so like having our own ability to to enforce our own sovereignty is is very important. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it is a, a less predictable world than it was in the 1990s. I think uh, we can we can uh, work, and it's important to work for ways to to maintain a rule governed world. But uh, incidents like like Ukraine and, and Syria make clear that at times that order breaks down, and uh, and uh, as long as the the global order is anarchical, there is no hierarchical power within within the world. There's no uh, global democracy. We're going to we're going to require force at times. Indeed. Uh, Speaking of Ukraine, the other big defense spending news this week is that uh, we're going to be purchasing uh, surface-to-air missile systems and sending them to Ukraine. Uh, So the system we're acquiring is the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System uh, that's produced by uh, Raytheon and I believe a Norwegian company in partnership. Uh, so this is uh, going to cost about $406 million. Uh, that comes out of the recently announced $500 million in in aid uh, for Ukraine. And also follows on to the U.S. government uh, supplying a bunch of systems uh, of the same type to Ukraine. Good. Uh, the weird thing about this whole thing is that... Uh, we're buying surface-to-air missile systems, but we actually don't have any of our own. The uh, Army has been without air defense capabilities for over 10 years now, when they got retired in 2012, and we haven't gotten around to replacing them yet. So it makes it a like, slightly weird purchase in that respect, and I don't know, hopefully if we're happy with how they're turning out, we can... To add a few more onto the order for our own use. Yeah, it does underscore that uh, that needs differ, and when when something really needs to happen, this government is capable of making things happen quickly. But on on other issues where there are, are say distributional impacts or for acquiring uh, a new a new military uh, component, where there are. Uh, simple bureaucratic uh, processes that are are left un unchecked by by political imperatives then these these things can drag on for as we just discussed not only years but indeed decades and so there's there, the the need is different canada is not in imminent need of of defending itself against a surface uh, against a, a missile attacks but uh, but this incident in in this ongoing uh uh, conflict in uh, Ukraine uh, with Russia's uh, continued uh, uh, aerial pressure it, it indicate is a, a clear reminder that sometimes we do need this capacity. And in this case, when we need to get it quickly, we simply buy it from the Americans and send it on. Yeah, and like the, these systems are definitely right now much better used in uh, Ukraine's hands than than ours. Uh, you know, every aircraft of the Russian Air Force they down is a a good thing and ultimately makes our allies more secure uh and ourselves uh as a result. Nevertheless, like it is a noticeable gap and like we have military personnel deployed in the Baltic in and currently they rely on our allies to provide them with cover uh should something unfortunate happen and uh a shooting war starts in the region ideally we would our troops would be able to protect themselves and not necessarily have to rely on our allies for that and 
hopefully we can get serious about this and scale that up because when we do deploy overseas, we, we want to be able to ensure our troops are protected against the full range of threats. And particularly as drone warfare becomes an increasingly significant factor on the battlefield, anti-air capability is something that absolutely has to be a part of any military uh, force. So yeah, uh, good news story, but like definitely something to watch for in terms of where things go from there on that. Uh, finally, uh, story one to Flade, where Trudeau had some thoughts this past week uh, about what Alberta should be doing with its uh, budget surplus. Uh, specifically, he was wanting Alberta to spend their surplus to help boost, uh, help bolster TATS credits for scaling up carbon capture, storage, and uh, emissions reduction technologies in Alberta. I mostly wanted to flay this because it seems unwise for Trudeau to be weighing in on the internal goings on within Alberta. Like if he wants to see more car or cat credits going to that sector, they can add a item in the upcoming budget on that. But like considering the political climate in Alberta, there's an election only a couple months away. And the narrative that, uh, Danielle Smith is like really hanging her hat on, uh, it seems unwise to give that narrative legs by having someone from Ottawa, particularly him, go around saying what Alberta should be doing with their own budget. Yeah, I think perhaps there's a risk, but I, I honestly, at this point, I, I'm not sure what the federal government uh, can do that would not be criticized in, in Alberta by, by ignoring Alberta, it would also be criticized as well. So I think, uh, at this point, uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau has simply written off any kind of hope of of having a positive influence on on the province, and and is when discussing Alberta politics is either discussing for a wider, d- distinct audience, or in this case, simply talking about something that really is in the province's interest. If the province uh, is serious about uh, maintaining an, an oil and gas industry and going into a low carbon future, then uh, uh, carbon capture, capture technology is going to be a part of that. And it's a, it's not a, uh, there, there's no guarantee that it's, it's going to be a, a uh, feasible technology any, anytime soon. So uh, effectively I, I see this as a, Trudeau saying, if you if you want to hold on to this sector of your economy in, in some capacity, um, you, this is this is what you need to do to to get to get there. It's it's not an unreasonable thing to say, whatever however it is perceived in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, like on its face, it's not super reasonable, but like in the context of, hey, we're giving Danielle Smith more ammunition uh, in her upcoming campaign. Yeah, maybe not the most the most politically savvy choice to make. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Smith will find something to complain about. If if he didn't talk here, there'd be something else. So, um, it, Yeah, but like you have the choice between accepting that they're going to try and pick a fight with you and 
giving them something to pick a fight with you about. Like it's they're a little different. Yeah, perhaps. Do you think there's a risk at uh, becoming uh, 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 trigger shy, gun shy? What, what am I looking to say about uh, shying away from saying something simply because you're you're worried about how it will be used by a, a given Alberta premier? Well, I mean, like a lot of politics is deciding when and where to say things. So I don't know that there's an art to it, and I, I'm not necessarily sure this is a case of uh, that uh, of things being done particularly artfully. Because there's also a question of whether Daniel Smith is is particularly popular in in Alberta as well. So um, he may not be uh, doing the 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 Liberals any favors, but it may not be the worst thing for uh, um, uh, Rachel Notley to 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 have something uh, reasonable to to point to as a way in which the the province can actually maintain an oil and gas industry going forward. Well, Stuart, uh, thanks for uh, joining me tonight and filling in. Normally, in the past, I've asked for, like you to share your Twitter handle and whatnot if people want to follow you. But uh, yeah, that's not really the, the main thing these days. But uh, thanks for coming on. And if you want to plug something, plug it. And if not, well, thanks for filling in. It's my pleasure. I mean, you can still find me at Twitter. It, it, it's it's hard to quit completely. It is the, the the global town square. So you can still find me at Stuart Prest. You can also find me at Quest University as well. So you're welcome to stop by if you're in the Squamish area. But uh, uh, otherwise, uh, you can find me uh, in the, uh, the Politico Slack, I'm sure, as well. So there are lots of places you can find me online and in the real world. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, coming on. Thanks for having me. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.